Um, I want to say uh, thankful for my country. And, uh, of course, it's with um, a profound sense of history and even a heavy heart that we lost our Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg this week. And uh, I think it's important that we as believers just stop just for a moment and consider this. It is a piece of history and a person who lived through a lot of our uh, change in history over the last many decades now. And at 87, uh, she passed away. And I think it's important as we as Christians, we have, to, we have to constantly check ourselves to make sure we're thinking on more than one level at a time. And what I mean by that is a lot of times we can get very myopic in our politics and we only think from that lens or we think over here only from this lens. Or, but what we need to remember is, first off, that was a person who lived and died and will spend eternity somewhere. And she has family around her that is grieving over her loss right now. And I think we as believers need to be very mindful of that in the way we interact. And though we may not agree with policy and wherever you stand on that, you may look back and say, well, I disagree completely. We can still be thankful for the fact that somebody was willing to lay down their life for so many decades to serve our country in that regard. And so we can rejoice in that. And then we can pray for our country going forward, that God would give clarity and leadership as we move forward in uh, the next months to come. We all would acknowledge that 2020 has been quite a year and that um, the events in our country are troubling. But here's the reality that we must constantly put our mind on is that our hope does not rest in this country or its systems. Our hope rests in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that he would be magnified through all the events of our country and that his name would be lifted up. And so I just want to encourage us to think rightly. Let us be as Christians a model of interacting and disagreeing with civility and with grace. That is possible to do. And we can do that, and we should be challenged to do that on a regular basis. And uh, with the goal of handing down our faith into another generation, we have a young man going to sing, uh, play some music for us.
Thank you, Josh. Excellent job. And I appreciate the heart of that young man as well. He came up to me after church this morning and he said, Pastor, I just want you to know I pray for you every week. And, um, and that is encouraging to my... You find your place in your Bible. We're going to turn to 2 Corinthians this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. Today is our, our growth group launch day. And uh, we're going to mark this as a line in the calendar that we are launching off our growth groups and wanting to make sure you have opportunity to see who is leading these growth group leaders and then be able to connect with them if you're not already connected. Uh, my hope is that by the end of the day, uh, we'll be able to answer several questions for you. Um, and we have things like this printed out. But the main thing I want to be able to communicate is the why of what we're doing and the heart behind it. Um, we have this little card that's at the back door for you on the way out. I want to make sure you get one of these, and it has some frequently asked questions about our growth groups and where to find information about it. And then there's also a printout with all of our growth group leaders on it that we handed out last week, and there's some out there still. You can get a copy of that, and uh, it'll let you know uh, the day of the week and the time they're going to be meeting, and that'll help you uh, connect with them. Um, and so this morning I want to look in Corinthians and we're going to walk through this just a, a passage at a time. And so if you have your Bibles open there to 2 Corinthians chapter number 1, let's stand together in honor of the Word of God and we'll read this together. And um, we're going to begin in verse number 3 and we'll read down through verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3 uh, through 11. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth. It is for your consolation and salvation which is effectual in the enduring of the same suffering which we also suffer, whether we comfort it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that ye are partakers of the suffering, so shall ye also be of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life." But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from our, so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will deliver us. He also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf." And then I'm reading from William's uh, translation of this same text here. And I love the wording here that he uses in uh, verse number three. He said, not just the God of all comfort, but he says this, the all comforting God. The all comforting God. And then he says in verse number five, for just as my sufferings for Christ are running over the cup, so through Christ my comfort is running over too. He said, basically, endeared experience shows that the more we give of his encouragement, the more we share in Christ's suffering, the more we're able to give his encouragement. And if you would, let's bow our heads in prayer and ask God to bless our time together. Father, we do this on a weekly basis. We read the Bible together. 
we bow our heads and we pray together. And what I think you'd be very to remember the importance of it. Uh, what I pray, Father, that you'd help us to have our minds quickened and awakened, or may our conscience be stirred. Lord, I pray, Father, the one here this morning that is far from you, that, Lord, you would draw them to you, the one that is close, that, Lord, may we be exposed to our own weakness and learn to trust in you more. Lord, I pray, Father, that you be with every uh, word that is said, that, Father, it will be measured uh, by your people this morning. We'll praise you for what you're doing already and what you intend to do this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You can be seated there if you would. In uh, June of 2017, uh, my family and I visited Shelby Bible Church for the first time. And on that Sunday night, I spoke from this very text. And um, that's where I felt like the Lord wanted us to be this morning again to review this truth, I believe, that is really the definition of what it is to be ministering. Um, I want us to look at this text through the idea of our growth groups as well as one-to-one -one discipleship. And really all of church ministry is built on the reality that each person that is a child of God is called to be a minister. That every person here this morning, if you are a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in you and you are called to be a minister. And I think one of the mistakes we've made in our Western culture is we've relegated ministry to men who stand on stages or lead music or teach a class and we fail to understand that ministry is what every person ought to be doing all day long in between every person they come in contact with. That we would be a light for the gospel or a, or a, um, a light for those in darkness and pulling people close. Three of Second Corinthians, he's challenging us in verses five and six. And he says this, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Understand this morning that no gospel minister is going to be sufficient in themselves to do it. As a matter of fact, he ends the chapter of chapter 2 and he says, uh, in verse number 16, he ends that verse by saying, who is sufficient for these things? And the, the not sufficient to do the work of ministry. In and of ourselves, we do not have it in us to do uh, gospel ministry, whether it be reaching a person who is lost or encouraging a brother and sister in Christ. We are not the source of ministry. We are the conduits of ministry. That God would work through us, and he works in us that he might work through us. And so uh, we want to see this work being done. Now he says then, in verse number 5 of chapter 3, that we're not sufficient of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. In verse number 6, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth and the Spirit giveth life. He said he hath made us able ministers. He is equipping us to do the work of ministry. Now, I've said before to you in many different contexts, and I'll say it again this morning as a way of introduction. First off, ministry is always a who, not a what. Ministry is a who. And the question this morning is not what are you doing? It's not what role are you filling. And the reality, if ministry was only about roles, then we would have to make up roles for you to fill in so you could do ministry. Ministry is not a, a title. It's the last thing. And by the way, a position, uh, this is a side note, positions will never make you what you should be. It'll simply reveal what you are. You think about that for a minute. Dads, moms, when we became parents, it didn't make us better people. It just revealed the people we were. 
And God began to expose what was on the inside of us. And that's a wonderful thing that God does that. But here's the thing. So it's not about a position. It's not a what that we do. It's a who. And the unsaved. And I think we can bear this out. The whole of this text in chapter 2 and 3 bear this out. In chapter 3, he tells them that you are our epistles written in our hearts. And he said, you are our testimonies of who our gospel ministry is. And he said, this is the thing. And it's always a very familial uh, description that he has of the churches he's ministering to. And he says, you are our epistles. You are important to us. See, the ministry is a who. And then who are these people that we're ministering to, the saved and the unsaved? Then he gives, I would call, the character or the parameters of ministry and what should happen. And look what he says in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He says, who is sufficient of these things at the end of 16 and then verse number 17? For we are not of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. He said, we are not of many. And this word corrupt literally means to become a peddler of the gospel. He said, we're not one that takes the gospel as a product and we package it and sell it to a community. That's not what we're doing. And let me make something very clear this morning. This, this Shelby Bible Church is not a business. And that needs to be very clearly. Now, we operate on many business principles, and we have to have policies and procedures that govern what we do. Uh, we have to have a budget, and we operate by a budget. We have men that help oversee that, and ladies that help us make that work. And we do all of those things that would, would make it look like, well, that's very business run. But here's the reality. This is not a business. This is a ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's important that we keep that as a church in front of us because if we're not careful, we can get so wrapped up in our procedures and in our policies and in our functioning that we fail to understand that ministry is not a what, it's a who, and that it's not something we're packaging to get to the most number of consumers we can find. We're not interested this morning in taking the gospel and making it less than what it is to let this world be more acceptable to our product. Our job has always been and always will be to preach the gospel as it is to men as they are, people to himself. Now, it will take some courage and boldness to stay that course, and I would, if I could prophesy for a minute, I would argue that it's going to take greater courage and greater boldness to continue that as we go. But it's still the obligation of the church to understand that we are not peddling the word of God. We are simply proclaiming the God of the word. And we want to do that faithfully and sincerely before God and able by God. Because who is really sufficient for these things? God. We always must rely on him. Now, if he says that he has made us able ministers and he is challenging us to do it, how is he doing this? How is he making us able ministers? You see, I believe this morning that God is doing a work in us that he might. Chapter 1 that we read together already. Look, if you would, in chapter number 1. In verse number three, uh, and we see him writing to the church here, and he's saying, the God of all comfort. Look what he says again, blessed be the God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, the God of some comfort. Is that what it says? The God of most comfort. No, it's the God of all comfort. If we would find comfort then, it follows that the only place we're going to find comfort is in God. He's the only source of comfort. There is no other source. Now, I'm glad that other people bring comfort to us when they come along to us. But by the way, they are simply conduits of comfort. They are not sources of comfort. 
When we comfort our children, we do so hopefully by the comfort that God has given us. We are not the source of comfort. This morning, I am not the source of comfort. When I stand at a funeral and I begin to try to comfort a family, that is not the source of comfort. The source is God who works through me to comfort those people. He's the God of all comfort. You see, there are many imitations, but nothing else brings comfort to our soul but the God of all comfort. You know, there are many things in this, this world that would give us the idea that this will give you comfort. This will come in and this will give you the ability to cope. Look and say, well, I know food will give us comfort. I know Cracker Barrel, their sign says, comfort food. Don't believe it. Um, it's a very short-lived comfort because after you've eaten three of them biscuits, you're not comfortable anymore. Um, it's not gonna happen. You know, we, we look around and we see all of these things that claim to give comfort and, and we think we're gonna find the answer in maybe some kind of, uh, of, of, of a bottle or a pill and we think this is gonna give us comfort. It's gonna give you comfort for long. It'll always leave you empty at the end, but there is a God of all comfort that will not only comfort us now, but comforts us through eternity. And this is the God of all comfort that we look to. How many of us this morning know what it is to have the comforting arms of God in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death wrapped his arms around you and you knew that God was there to comfort you? And it's not something that I can really even quantify for, him, for you, but you know those days when you've been in that valley and you've been alone and you've been afraid and God came in and gave comfort. And so the comforting God comes. He's the God of all comfort. Now he says he's the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation. And here we see Paul being an extremist again. He says all comfort, and now he says all tribulation. So a pastor, he doesn't mean all tribulation, does he? I believe he means all tribulation. I believe there is not one thing that you and I can go through that the God of all comfort is not the source and the means by which you and I are comforted in that tribulation. The word tribulation here is the idea of trouble. It's used uh, interchangeably often in, in, in our translation. It literally means affliction, anguish, burdened, persecution, pressure. It's the idea that we have in our world today that I'm under so much stress. And I think if we're not careful, we look at stress as being just a, a, a word of modern society that we have to figure out a way to cope with. But I got news for you this morning. When you are stressed, and he gives relief in your stress, and I promise you this morning, when you turn to him in prayer, in the moments of being stressed, he is there to comfort you in that moment. He does not leave us unaccompanied. See, it's the pressing weight that threatens to crush the life from our body. Paul even says this as he's looking in verse number five, I believe it is, the suffering of Christ abounds in us. He says it's, it's this suffering continues to increase on us. He said, but it's also his, he said at one point that we knew that we were going to die. And he said, verse number nine, he said, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Verse number eight, he said, we despaired even of life. This moment of the valley, and we're thinking, man, I can't even seem to breathe right now. 
And I can go back in my mind's eye to places in my past where God has taken me through a valley and I didn't even know what to do. I didn't even know how to pray at the moment. How do you even pray right now? What do you even say? And I'm glad that the God of all comfort doesn't expect me to fill in some boxes before he answers a prayer, but he hears the groaning of our heart and he comes to where we are and he gives us comfort in that moment. He is the God of all comfort. William Barclay, in his commentary on this text, he points out that this is, the word is used here, is also used of a form of English capital punishment. And what they would do is a man refused to plead uh, at the court of law, they would take him and lay him down, strapped to a table, and they would lay weights on his chest. And it would cause it to be harder for him to breathe, and so with the weights on the chest, he would have to heave his chest up to breathe and and if he still refused to plead they would add more weight to his chest and in some cases up to 300 pounds were placed upon men's chest before they gave way and their lungs were crushed beneath the weight refusing to give in and plead this is the same word that is used here and I don't know where you're at in life but and by the way let me say adults let's make sure that we don't trivialize the trials that we've come through that somehow or another, well, you're young and you're going through a young person that's feeling excluded and left out, they need to hear this message this morning too. Because those weights of pressure sit upon their chest and they do feel excluded and they feel like they can't breathe and that weight sits heavy upon them to the point of crushing out the very life from in them. And here we see Paul saying, this is the God that comes to us when life seemingly is being pressed out of us and he gives us comfort in this moment and not just for the present, but for eternity. Just tells us the scope of what he's reaching into. He gives us examples of what this tribulation would look like. He said it would look like persecution from without of the church. He said they were coming and wanting to kill us and Paul had people chasing him from city to city and trying his best to stir up trouble everywhere he went to preach the gospel. And we live in a day that is unprecedented in American history where it's become less popular to believe to be a Bible-believing Christian than it ever has been in American history. Now, we can thank God for our past, but let me make something very clear. We may face that persecution, and in that day, he is still the God of all comfort. And Paul even says that as the suffering abounds, his comfort abounds. He said as the suffering begins to pour in, then the comfort begins to pour over. And now we see the God of all comfort coming to us in our tribulation, in our heartache. Whatever the heartache is this morning, you can define it because in that moment, he is still the God of all comfort. So, persecution. He said the threat of death. We read that already in verse 9. He said, we took the sentence of death upon us. We assumed death was coming. And what did it cause us to do? It caused us to look to the resurrection. The correction of leaders. I was joking with some of the guys last night, and uh, we were, they were at the house for a bonfire last night. For a, it was a little later, and, and I said, all right, guys, you better go home and get some sleep, because if you fall asleep in church tomorrow, I'm going to call you out. And they, they chuckled with me a little bit, but, you know, we've all been corrected at some point, right? And it stung. Paul had written a very weighty letter to the church at Corinth just as a lash across them, and it was just page after page of get this right, stop messing with that, and the church was grieved by the letter, and rightly so, and they sorrowed unto godly repentance, and Paul acknowledges the fact that he had caused them grief, and he said, and when that suffering, God is still the God of all comfort. We see not only the correction of a leader, but we see the sins in a church. 
The church can go through a time where there is sin in our midst and it brings grief and it brings pain and it brings heartache and we ask the question, why still the God of all comfort the sin against you? I don't know if you've ever been done wrong. Anybody here ever been done wrong before? Yeah. And when somebody treats you wrong and somebody hurts you and you go to that place of being wounded and being hurt and wondering what you're going to do, let me encourage you not to turn to another source but go to the God of all comfort who is able to comfort you in all our tribulations. When family abandon us, when loved ones turn their back on us, when, when church members and people who love us and claim to love us abandon us, God is still the God of all comfort. He points out to our own sin. He talks about the separation of loved ones here. Somebody said one time that the definition of friendship is when you can look across the table at someone and say, you too? Oh, you went through that? Oh, you had that same heartache? And there's a connection now because you found somebody who understands. And let me just say this morning, there is no suffering, there is no heartache, there is no pain that you will ever go through who the God of all comfort through the person of Jesus Christ has not already gone through for you. You understand that he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin. The Bible says that not only was our sin placed upon him, but I'm glad to tell you this morning that our grief and our sorrow and our pain was placed upon him as well on the cross. And he understands. He can look at you no matter where you're at or what stage of life you're in, and he can look right down in your soul, and he knows everything that has you afraid this you. I understand. And I'm the God of all comfort. And I can come to you and give you comfort in the midst of those valleys. The word comfort, or the God of all comfort, what are these tribulations that we're looking at? Let me sum them up in three things. I think, first off, we've already identified this, but the tribulation of the cross. It's that struggle that we face because we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is able to come to us and walk with us as we stand boldly for him. We can do so knowing that he is but this is probably the most of us, the tribulation of a fallen world. How many of you this morning we know there's not a person in this room that hasn't been touched by cancer? Not a person. Or disease, or separation, or betrayal, or abuse. Many here this morning, you could stand and testify, if you had the freedom to do so, of people who have abused you, and the pain is so great that it would leave us all hurting for you this morning, and yet this pain that we go through, this tribulation, sins against us from without, disease within us, disease in our family, death and separation, all of this is a result of a fallen world, and every one of these, the God of all comfort, comes alongside of us and comforts us in that tribulation. And I'm glad this last one's the case because I think this doesn't just apply to some of us or even most of us, it applies to all of us. It's the tribulation of our own sinful heart. How many of you have sinned against the Lord and you've brought tribulation on yourself? Yeah. We knew what we were doing was wrong. We knew giving that person a piece of our mind, we couldn't afford to do it because we didn't have enough to spare, but we did it anyway. We let them know what we thought. 
We offer this, we offer uh, pursuing lust and pursuing greed and pursuing things that never comfort and pursuing our addiction even though we know how it's left us in the past and we do all of these things but I'm glad to stand before you this morning that even in my own pain, even when I have sinned against him and I love the songwriter said, though I forget I stray and back to his dear loving arms would I flee when I remember that Jesus loves me. He's the God of all comfort and he comforts me when I have sinned. Confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a God who comforts me when I hurt myself. What a God. A little different than the word we use today. I think we get the word comfort and we get, oh, you poor thing. Uh, or maybe comfort is this, ah, I feel so bad for you, I hope that works out. That's not comfort either. It's not this idea of sympathy or just even really identifying with, but it goes a little further than that. The root word here, in uh, the, the Greek root word here, is the same root word that is used for the Holy Spirit of God. Here, here's the word, it means to draw near or to call near or to invite. Comfort is inviting them into your space. It, comfort is saying, hey, come here. Let me, let me bring you in. Jesus would do this when he prayed for Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how off would I have gathered you? The picture here, he used the picture of a hen gathering the chicks as he pulled those little ones underneath his wings. He said, how oft would I have comforted you? How oft would I have gathered you? But you would not. The picture here is one of walking next to and inviting to be near. The Latin root, and I love this, the Latin root of the word comfort is fortis. It's to brave, to brave. But it's not just that. It is to brave together. It's to brave together. You see, it's the picture of not coming to someone and listening to their problem and saying, man, I hope that works out for you. I'll be praying for you. And as James would say, be warmed and be fed and go your way. But it's no, hey, let me put an arm around you and let's walk this together because no matter what comes at you, it's going to be living together as you walk into this moment. It's the picture of that child reaching out for that security of a blanket in the middle of a night when there's a bad dream. And what does that child do? Takes the blanket and pulls that blanket it up over their head. We've all had, all of you that had children, you know that sound of feet across the floor in the middle of the night and there's a knock at the door or there's a creak and a little ray of light that comes in. Mama? They never say daddy first. Uh, we'd say, get back to bed, what's your problem? I had a bad dream. And what do we do? We grab that little one and we scoop him up in our arms and we tuck him into bed next to us. And now they know that no matter what comes at them, there's someone far bigger than them next to them that's gonna protect them from it. And friend, that's what you and I do when we go to the God of all comfort. As we walk into the presence of Almighty God with our fears and our sinfulness and our brokenness and the disease, and we say, God, I don't know what to do. And what did he do? He scoops us up in his arms and he wraps us in his arms and we brave it together. You see, because we come to him and we find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We walk together with him. Years ago in Savannah, before we moved here, we, in southern Ohio, and we, uh, the house that we had, we would usually come in the back door in our, house, our home, our bedroom, rather, uh, was to the left and the kids' room was to the right. 
And uh, Savannah and I, for some reason, were there by ourselves, and she needed to get something uh, from her bedroom, maybe some clothes or something. And I, I was very, just matter of fact, you need to go get your stuff, and we got to leave. And I'm like, so go get your stuff. I'm going to go to my bedroom and get what I need, and then let's meet right here, and we'll go. We need to be out of here in like five minutes. And so I'm really, you know, just being real dad mode, you know, get it done. And I, I walk in, and, and she goes, but dad, I, I don't, and I said, Savannah, look, I don't have time. You need to go back there and get your stuff and get it and let's go. And I start to walk into my room and Savannah, she turns and she's looking at the back of the house and it's all dark. And I remember it about that moment. Susie told me she didn't like to go back there by herself. And she's walking into the dark one. What time I am afraid I will trust in thee. What time I am afraid I will trust in thee. And I was feeling about pretty bad about not being a very comforting father at that moment. We turned the lights on and walked back together. And let me say this morning, there is no time that you are afraid that you cannot trust in him. And he pours out comfort in all our tribulation. Of one who is hurt, but is rather bringing courage to us to face the trials. Courage to be even thankful for the trials of seeing that God is using the trials to form us to the image of his son. Polycarp, the disciple of the apostle John, reached the age of 93, I believe, and then was arrested and taken to be executed for his faith. And he stood there on the day of his execution, and he said, I thank thee that thou hast judged me worthy of this hour. What a prayer. What a hope in the God of all comfort. I love what Spurgeon wrote, and if you've not read anything from the life of Spurgeon, I would commend it to you. Spurgeon was a preacher of a, gener of a century ago now who preached faithfully through that century uh, and yet dealt with great depression and physical hurt. He had all kinds of struggles that he faced in the midst of that, and yet he wrote these words in some of his lowest moment. He said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. What a statement. What beautiful words that we can be thankful for the trials that throw us on Christ. He is the God of all comfort. Now here's where the message is. That was all introduction, all right? This is where the rubber meets the road, right here, all right? And I don't want you to miss the next three or four minutes because this is where we're gonna find what we do. Look in verse number four who comforted us in all our tribulation, next five words, that we may, to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have been comforted of God. And so what do we find? If we stop with the God of all comfort, comforting us in all our tribulations, we can rejoice in that, but we don't have ministry now. But what God is saying is that in the tribulation that you have received, he has given you comfort, and now the comfort he has given you is not something for you to consume upon yourself, but you take it and come that he gave you. You see, here's what I believe. I believe God is making ministers out of us in the midst of our suffering. He is shaping us to be the ministries he's called us to be. You see, that without him, we can do none of these things. If we are not being comforted by him, we're not going to comfort anybody with that comfort because we've not received that comfort. If you don't know what it is to rejoice in the forgiveness of your sins, how are you going to tell anybody else about it? 
But we have been there and we know what it is to be forgiven and we can go to another person who is lost and without him and say, hey, I know who will forgive you. You see, somebody said this and I agree with it, that, 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 that ministry is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Say, hey, I, I was a sinner, a far from God. I was without him. I was hungry and I was destitute, but I came in. And by the way, the price has already been paid. The banquet table is, fed, is set already and grace is abundant to all who come. And you and I have the privilege of going with that grace. So to comfort them, to call them near those who are in any trouble, by the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted of God. And by the way, this morning, we are going to comfort them with the same thing we're comforted with. Uh, this is not done with man's wisdom or some kind of cute trick. No, it's only done with the comfort of God, from God, for the people who are hurting. We're not free this morning to go to this world with man's answers to solve their trouble. We're not free to offer quick fixes or psychological trickery. We are not free to offer self-help or self-confidence any more than we can offer someone's had to give to a hurting world is the same thing throughout all the generations and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only message we have to offer. Andre Krauss wrote the words, and I think that song fits so well here. He said, Jesus is still the answer. And though time and ages roll, Jesus is still the answer. He's the answer for the soul. And though some may say he doesn't fit with their philosophy, I know that Jesus is still the answer. He's always been, and he always will be. Who is hurting with the answer of Jesus Christ? So as our suffering abounds, so comfort abounds, so ministry abounds. So what would I say to groups? How are we going to do one-to-one -one discipleship? How are you going to encourage the person next to you? You say, Pastor, I don't know where to minister. Let me tell you where to start. Look around and see if there's a person next to you. If there is, that's a place to start. Because they need a minister. And you need to minister to them. There's people everywhere around us. Start in your home. There's places to minister. So then, what is it that we look like? Here it is. Here's the formula. Suffering plus comfort equals ministry. Suffering plus comfort equals ministry. So where have you suffered? You know, I think a lot of times we sit back and say, Pastor, I just don't know exactly where I would minister to others at. Who would I minister to? Ask yourself, where have you suffered at? And here's the reality, if this morning you've ever been forgiven of your sins, you've suffered because you've sinned. And so now you can go and say, hey guys, I know what it is to fall flat on my face. And let me make something very clear. Don't ever get in the mentality that some, somehow or another the only qualified ministers are those who have never fallen. If that's the case, none of us here are qualified to minister. Now, we're going to do some series in the month of October, Lord willing, on the role of a pastor. And I think there is, there is great biblical principle behind how we choose pastors. All of that's important. But the point being is if you're looking for somebody perfect to do ministry, then nobody can do ministry. God uses broken people who've been people so they can be comforted by his grace. So they can take that to broken people who've been comforted by his grace. Who is sufficient of these things? Not us. Our sufficiency is of God. He pours through us. I think sometimes we even sit back and say, Pastor, as soon as I get everything figured out, then I'm gonna start ministering. Start ministering right now. So where do I start ministering at? Where you've been broken at. Where you've been hurt at. And where God has given the grace and poured out comfort to you, you can go to the ministry starts there. 
you've ever taken trouble to him, if you've never taken your trouble to him to allow him to comfort you, you're not going to be able to comfort others. So let me encourage you this morning to take your burdens to the Lord. If you've never come to the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're not going to be able to tell anybody what a wonderful Savior he is. So come to him this morning. You know, as we consider all the trouble and pain we have faced and will face, when we are helped by the comfort of God, I believe this is simply training for ministry. God has purpose on the other side of the pain and the heartache. Betrayal, lies, failures. Where are you hurting at this morning? I think in that place right there, God is shaping a minister. By the way, parents, let me encourage us to take our children to this. Our children are going to be betrayed. They're going to be disappointed. They're going to feel left out. They're going to be sinned against. It's very easy for us to take the wrong approach to this and to simply say, oh, I feel so sorry for you. Instead of saying, hey, there's a God who can comfort us. And now you take that comfort to somebody else and call them to step out. And don't just be consoling yourself and your hurt and justifying your anger, but saying, God, I have been hurt. Now you comfort me. Who can I bring comfort to? And take it to someone else. So then this morning, the question when you and I face tribulation and suffering is not what is doing this to me, but rather what is God doing in me? And what is he shaping in me? I believe this, suffering plus comfort equals ministry. This morning we are drawing a line in the sand and we're going to launch our growth groups going forward. I'd like to have all of our growth